0: Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. Rama Burstein Shai is one of Israel's leading writer-directors whose films have won awards and acclaim around the world. She is on the cutting edge of making films about an aspect of Israeli life the world seems fascinated by, The Lives of the Ultra-Orthodox. Even before hit Netflix series like Shtizl, her films were giving Israel and the international audiences a deeper understanding of the often mysterious world of the ultra-Orthodox with a special focus on the women in that community who are often invisible and voiceless. We'll talk about Rama Burshtin Shai's work and her fascinating life story. But before that, let me welcome my co-host, Amir Thibon, to take a short trip back in time to the days of the Trump White House, back when he was our Washington, D.C. correspondent. Amir, are you feeling nostalgic? You're remembering the cherry blossoms, you know, the... Summers in D.C.?
1: Yeah, Alison, really the summers I don't miss. That's the thing. (laughs) August is not a time when you really look back at Washington, D.C. and say, oh, I miss that city. Worse than Tel Aviv, even. Oh, my God. The fall, the spring, definitely. But right now, I say even Israel is better than the D.C. summer.
0: So the reason we're taking Amir on this trip is because Jared Kushner, Uh, former President Donald Trump's son-in-law, senior advisor, czar of all things Middle East, widely considered to have been one of the driving forces, if not the driving force behind the Abraham Accords, has published, or to put it more accurately, will publish a memoir. It's supposed to be published officially in about a month, but it seems to be leaking all over the place. You're nobody if you haven't read an excerpt of it. The book is called Breaking History, a White House memoir, and it is one of many what I did in the Trump administration memoirs for our little part of the world the Middle East we've had a memoir by former ambassador David Friedman one by Jason Greenblatt the head negotiator is uh, is coming out why do you think that uh, Kushner's is you know significant interesting important
1: so first of all Kushner was much closer to the president than some of the other former Trump advisors who have put out memoirs and books Recently, David Friedman even had a documentary, which I think you watched, Elison, at the time. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, I didn't get to watch it. Um, I do plan to read um, Kushner's book. I've already seen some of the leaked parts of it. and It looks more interesting and perhaps even more accurate than some of the other portrayals because it also gives you some of the politics behind the scenes. When these issues like the Abraham Accords and Trump's deal of the century, do you remember there was such a thing? I,
0: yeah, I think I remember that phrase. Yeah,
1: and The deal of the, well, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Um, but, but these things were being negotiated and there was a lot of political infighting behind the scenes. And I think Kushner gives you more of a taste of that.
0: The behind the scenes look.
1: Yeah, for example, when he writes that Trump was disappointed by Netanyahu's reaction to the U.S. uh, embassy relocation to Jerusalem and that Trump thought Netanyahu wasn't forthcoming enough and enthusiastic enough about it. That's an interesting observation, although I, I think our colleague Anshul Pfeffer wrote at the time that he doesn't think Bibi is especially excited about this move. Um, and that he would prefer a different line perhaps from Trump on the issue of uh, Iran or regional security. And Kushner now really validates that.
0: And I remember when that was happening and they had the big ceremony about the embassy move. It was so American, all of these Christian ministers speaking and all of these.
1: Including one who had this great series of uh, uh, observations about Jews and gays and Muslims and other groups. Um, I don't remember his name now. But we had a few stories about him at the time on HaArts.com that he gave a sermon at the embassy relocation. And really, it was so respectful to have a, f- a public figure like that <laughs> speak at the event. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I guess. I mean, but Netanyahu, I guess maybe was cautious because maybe he was listening to all the experts who were saying there's going to be a big explosion. This is going to be a disaster and he's risk averse.
1: I don't think that's the explanation that Kushner gives, but it's just interesting to see how he describes it. There's another part of the book that um, our colleague Barack Ravid uh, published uh, today where he says that after Trump and Netanyahu in the White House in January of 2020 presented together that peace plan that went nowhere, the deal of the century, Trump felt that Netanyahu used him for campaign purposes and even at one point wanted to express public support to endorse Benny Gantz, Netanyahu's rival in that year's Israeli election, because he was so angry at Netanyahu and his advisors had to stop him from doing that, which is a very interesting story. And it connects to what we heard um, later in Barack's own book uh, that was published only in Hebrew, uh, Trump's piece uh, of Trump basically cursing at Netanyahu and saying that he's done with him. But I have to say, at the end of the day, Nobody did more to help Netanyahu stay in power for as long as he did than Trump. With all of that anger behind the scenes and all of the stories of him being displeased with the former and maybe future prime minister, Trump campaigned for Bibi full time during the three Israeli election campaigns of 2019 and 2020. So there is a bit of a dissonance between the feelings and the the things that he said uh, behind the scenes and what he actually did in public.
0: And if you know the two of them should come back in the future, you don't think the bromance will be dead?
1: I don't know. I mean, nobody can predict how Trump is going to react. Uh, <laughs> to and anything. I think in a second Trump term, I think this will be the least of our concerns. But it is it is an interesting issue to think about.
0: So back to Jared Kushner and his memoir uh, in some of these leaked excerpts, he takes um, MBS's version instead of the CIA's version when it came to the crown prince's role in the killing of uh, Washington Post journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi in uh, in, uh, 2018. Uh, He wrote, quote, when we discussed the murder of Khashoggi, the crown prince took responsibility for the fact that it happened on his watch, though he said he was not personally involved. He said that he was conducting a thorough investigation, planned to address the murder publicly as soon as it was complete. While the situation was terrible, I couldn't ignore the fact that the reforms that MBS was implementing were having a positive impact on millions of people in the kingdom, especially women. All of these reforms were major priorities for the United States.
1: Alison, who wrote that, Jared Kushner or or one of Joe Biden's advisors? Because (laughs) honestly, this is the same playbook that we heard from the Biden administration around the president's recently completed visit to Saudi Arabia. It's true that Biden wasn't as flattering toward MBS and we only saw that hesitant fist bump. But at the end of the day, in the U.S.-Saudi relationship, it's more about cold interests than about personalities and we heard so much about jared kushner and mbs being friends and talking on whatsapp but really what made the difference is that the trump administration needed saudi arabia for the moves they were planning in the middle east and now the biden administration needs saudi arabia for other reasons oil prices and the competition with china and russia and this is the source of the U.S. hypocrisy when it comes to Saudi human rights, and it's not unique to Saudi Arabia. It's part of uh, how the U.S. conducts its foreign policy in general.
0: So, speaking of cold interests, um, Jared Kushner's private equity firm, Affinity Partners, just happened to receive a two billion dollar investment you from the say. from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. That, that <laughs> cannot be. Just after Joe Biden uh, won the election, he swears no connection. That's not why I was nice to him, is it? And you believe it? Is it unfair to uh, to think that maybe he had more than just American interests at heart?
1: This will become a more interesting question if indeed there is another Trump administration and Jared Kushner once again becomes the appointment on the Middle East and I think this book shows us that he would like that to happen. He's trying to show his achievements in the field of Middle East diplomacy. And his contribution to the Abraham Accords may be in anticipation of uh, trying to have uh, another crack at the subject in a future administration. And I think that if indeed there is another chance for Jared Kushner, he would try to go for an Israeli-Saudi deal. Because that's the big piece that is still missing from everything they did between Israel and the Gulf.
0: Do you think he has ambitions like that? Do you think he sees himself as uh, being more than you know, a very f- successful financier?
1: I have not spoken to him since I came back from Washington, so I cannot... You're not uh, having lunch anymore. I, I can't say anything about his personal intentions, but I don't think he would be putting out this book and putting out his story, his version of this history, if there was no future ambition involved.
0: So another highlight of the leaked excerpts from the book is... Basically, Kushner's open admission that he decided to get rid of this honest broker business between Israel and the Palestinians Uh, after Trump decides to move the embassy to Jerusalem. uh, Rex Tillerson, the secretary of state, urges him to acknowledge the Palestinian claim to East Jerusalem, to give them a bone, let them save face. And Kushner says, "Ah, if they don't come back to us, they don't come back to us. And he said, quote, Whereas our predecessors had tried to play the role of neutral brokers, we're unapologetically standing with Israel on the policies where we agree. And
1: and you know, it didn't really work, Alison, right? Because at the end of the day, yes, they got the Abraham Accords. It's a great diplomatic achievement. And I think even President Biden has acknowledged that as the one Trump administration achievement that he's trying to build on into his administration. But that did not solve Israel's very serious problem with our Palestinian neighbors. On the day that the Accords were signed in the White House, Hamas shot, or or perhaps it was Islamic Jihad, doesn't really matter, shot rockets at uh, Israeli cities in, in southern Israel. And ever since the Accords were signed, we had a war in May of 2021, where you had this entire country burning fires in Jerusalem, rockets on the south, terrible riots and violence between Arabs and Jews inside Israel in the mixed cities. So having peace with the United Arab Emirates, a country that we were never at war with to begin with, is great. And I'm not trying to diminish the importance. And I do think they deserve a lot of credit. But ignoring the Palestinians doesn't really help Israel in the long term because the Palestinians are still here. And Gaza hasn't gone anywhere. And East Jerusalem, whether Trump or Biden or anyone, you know, Israeli governments doesn't want to acknowledge it. But East Jerusalem is still an area where you have a Palestinian majority, and these are people who are not citizens of Israel, and of course, we're not even talking about the occupied territories, that's a problem we still have to solve. And if Jared Kushner thinks that Israel can have peace with, uh, I don't know who's next on the list, uh, Oman, uh, Indonesia, without the Palestinians, great, let's do it. But it's not going to help us the next time there are rockets from Gaza, or God forbid, another war like May of 2021.
0: So that's like the two-sided coin of the Kushner legacy. On one hand, he was able to achieve these things because he ignored the Palestinians, but on the other hand, he didn't really do much to make the Palestinian problem go away.
1: Maybe in the second term,
0: Who knows? Anyway, thank you for um, traveling to Washington, D.C. You can come back to Tel Aviv now, Amir.
1: So, yeah, this was a really, really nice conversation, Elison, but I think you've got something even more interesting coming up next.
0: Thanks so much. <laughs> As Amir said, coming up next, a conversation with filmmaker Rama Burshtin Shai. Rama Burshtin Shai, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: So before we discuss your impressive body of work, let's talk a little bit about where it's coming from. You're Israeli, but your family came to Israel from the United States when you were quite young.
2: My mother is an American. My father is Israeli. He was born in Falsaba, so he's true Israeli.
0: So do you feel like you grew up as a s- typical secular Israeli, or was your background different because you were an American mother? Your cultural touchstones were different?
2: No, very, very secular. Extremely secular. And American? Uh, just very secular. And has my, my mother grew up very, very secular in the States, um, and we, we had nothing to do with Judaism.
0: Um, and you were always attracted to film, you always knew this was what you wanted to do for a young age, or it's something that came to you later?
2: Okay, I'll tell you a story, and this story goes all over my life. I went with a, with a friend of mine, she had an interview in a building in Jerusalem, and she wanted me to come with her and to a school, not, not film school. And when she went in, I remembered that in the second floor, there was the film school. So I went down and when I walked in, they said, do you you need the, how do you say, the the papers to register? And I said, yes. (laughs) So they gave me and I read it. And then I said, I must learn cinema. I must. Now it became a must. It was not there a moment ago. And then it became a must. And this is how I started. So this is my life. It's like I don't know anything about it, and then I want only that, so.
0: At age 27, after you went to film school, you very, very suddenly decided to become ultra-Orthodox. Were you attracted to religion for the same reasons that had
2: driven you to make art? I think I, think I thought art would answer the questions that the religion did. I was seeking always. I was a seeker, and I was looking for the, that meaning, that thing, and when I met Judaism, I never thought I would find it there. I thought I would find it spiritually, but not in in Judaism. I thought more more Buddhism, more Far East. And uh, once I I met Judaism in in the way I did, which is very different, because like you can live in Israel and know nothing about Judaism, which is like, who planned the whole thing, uh, this agenda. Um, so, when I did, it was like the answer for everything I was looking for. So, art was not important at that time for many years.
0: So, you put film aside and you became invested in your religion, in your family, etc. What pulled you back into filmmaking, uh, which resulted in your really uh, acclaimed 2012 uh, film, Fill the Void? What made you come back?
2: First of all, thank you. Um, I, I, I was not into art at all those years. I, was, I got married, and I had four kids in very, very small gaps. So I was really hooked on that. And I did write a novel at the time. Uh, it did came out in a very small edition. I was in the hospital with one of my kids, and the b'not the, the girls that are helping there, told me they saw a film that was done by uh, a a religious person and they don't understand how come a religious person does a film like that. So they asked me to watch the film and see if I can help them discover the yamulke. And I did and I cried the whole time. Not because it was moving, because it was sad. I felt at that moment that we're not in in the cultural dialogue. The ultra orthodox are not there. We're too busy doing other things. We don't really care, kind of what's progressing, and we're not there. And it's okay, but people just you know do with us whatever they want. So it was time. Let them do whatever they want. It's okay, but it, maybe it's time to have another voice, which is like a like a ultra orthodox ultra-orthodox voice. At that point. Ushpizin came out, but Ushpizin was done by a non-religious person. It was played and wrote, but was directed by a secular person. Sorry, see that? (laughs) So it was like a a, a new thing. It was a really, really new thing to do. And I was totally silenced for many years, and then I couldn't stop talking from that moment on. So... This is how fill the void came to be. Not that it was easy; it was a very it was, it was a very crazy p- process for a woman to decide to do that. And who would give her the money to do it? You know, I was blessed. I think we can
0: say there's been a revolution since then in terms of at least the amount of uh, art made that's uh, you know portraying life in the ultra orthodox and orthodox uh, sphere. Fill the Void debuted in 2012 you know wowed the Venice Venice Film Festival and then was chosen as Israel's entry for the Oscars I remember you seemed absolutely stunned and surprised when uh, when that happened that you thought you were telling a very specific story and you know not that it would touch international audiences that way but looking back in retrospect it was kind of the opening shot as you said post uh, Ushbizin which was also an acclaimed film dealing with the ultra-Orthodox world and what became really a fascination and obsession in many quarters with dramas set in the Haredi uh, world. 10 years later, 10 years after your film, happy anniversary by the way. <laughs> um, do you understand why the secular world is so interested and is so fascinated by these stories?
2: I, I, sh- I should know why because it's you know it was a surprise for me and fire dance, Rikuda Esh, the the TV show
0: that's your new series that's debuting in Israel on Yes, and I'm sure is headed eventually for some international yes. streaming service. So Hopefully. E- listeners will be able to he- see it, soon. right? Yeah.
2: So Fire Dance started in America. Okay, I was approached by a producer in America and w- that wanted to do TV with me, and I already felt that TV is the new cinema, and I should do the transformation. I I gave him a paper of the Fire Dance. And, he's, and he was really, he loved it. And I said, why do you like it? What's, what's, I mean, maybe for cinema, you know, people that like to go to cinema, they would like to see something exotic, but like TV, why would, would someone want that? And he said something very strong. He said, everyone is selling satisfaction and you are selling passion. For us to have passion in our world, we need to be vampires. Otherwise, why wouldn't we take what we want to have? But in your world you set the rules in a way that passion is very, very strong. And actually people are looking for passion. Because the opposite of passion, which is satisfaction, is 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 like numbness. And people want to be in fire. So I understood that what we're like what what we're selling is in this time of age, you know, this this date, there's like we're not allowed to do a lot of things, and that's and I think that grabs a lot of people. I think for a real romance, you know, rom com or romantic drama,
0: you need obstacles, and in our modern world, there's not that many obstacles to people getting together. So that's why I think the romance and the romantic dramas that uh, that are big hits, Bridgerton, you know, and everything Jane Austen, you know, which is remade over and over again, because these historical dramas, um, uh, Outlander, they they exist in in you know, previous worlds that have rules. And I think our only modern worlds that have real rules and real obstacles to love and romance are in these
2: deeply religious communities like yours. True. But, you know, if if you look at it, it like people would say, would I think, mistake to say that it's de- deprived, you say, like it's an primitive. Well, it, yeah. In a way, but it's not. It's mm-hmm. like, this is what we're looking for. Not religion, but we are looking for Boundaries to keep, to keep our energy, to keep our feelings. When the boundaries are not there and everything is, we're able to take everything we actually want. Then we kind of bored.
0: (laughs) Um, Well, your dramas definitely aren't boring, so you've succeeded there. Thank you. So, uh, what about the transition from films to television? How did you like it?
2: I think I like it very much, and I think I mean you know, who knows, but today, cinema, it looks like, like poetry for me, and I'm into novels, <laughs> so I th- it's, it's outstanding that you can make your stuff as cinema, shot like cinema, you know, acting like cinema, and yet it's a long ride, and you have a lot of characters and side stories that you can really develop, I love that.
0: Your desire to make art on one hand and live in the ultra-Orthodox community, on the other hand, you know, looks challenging. Uh, It took you a long time to get to fill the void. And I remember when you were doing interviews for that film, you said, listen, if my community has a problem with this, if I can't, you know, live my life and make these films, that you would be content to stop. But since you kept going, I would presume that uh, you found a level of acceptance uh, between the world you live in and and the art you create.
2: It's been so long since 2012. So many things changed, things changed. I would say that I'm not that ultra-Orthodox in terms of the society. I feel that I'm even closer to God, but not, it changed. I'm not there anymore. Mm I was accepted and not accepted, and it was. And I agreed with all with all parts, and I love the ultra orthodox society. They do amazing stuff, and the women are amazing. They're more capable than any other women I met. Mm-hmm. But I'm not there anymore.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm more on my own. So I mean, you're you're first film,
0: Fill the Void, and I would say also Fire Dance take place, you know, completely in this ultra orthodox you know world bubble etc and the uh, the middle uh, project the the wedding plan it, it straddles the worlds you know the the characters live in the ultra orthodox world and the orthodox world and it crosses over into secular life so you would say that maybe you exist more in the wedding plan world these days than in the uh, in the other two
2: I think I was always in the wedding plans world because I'm a balachuva I became religious I was not born and raised in, 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 the, in the Uta Orthodox community. So I'm more of that um, to begin with. Yet I was so close and fascinated by the Utah Orthodox world and the Hasidic world in, in, in particular because I'm very Hasidic. Very spiritual, yeah,
0: Levy. yeah. Yeah, very Hasidic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I
2: don't know even how, to, there's not another word, yeah. just Hasidic. Yeah,
0: in America you refer to Hasidim, and in Israel usually you refer to Haredim, So it's, No, uh,
2: there's Haredim and there's Hasidim. Hasidim is Hasidim. It's more, it's different. It's Hasidic is different than Litvak mm-hmm. in terms of that.
0: I noticed, you know, motif in all three novels. You know, maybe because they're Cinderella stories, weddings are very central and it's kind of the peak, the climax of all three films. Are you a hopeless romantic who loves weddings? Is it just because marriage and shiduchim are so at the center of uh, of Haredi life? Tell me about you and
2: weddings. For in in, in, in the ultra orthodox community, wedding is is equal to just love. You know it this is our way to 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 have love in our lives but it's the same for secular people i think this is why people connected to to my to my work all over the world because it's about love it's not about marriage it's about commitment it's about finding the the one and i think that my definitely my life is around that it was always like that and it, before i became religious after i became religious Love and the and the enigma between men and women is something that I'm extremely fascinated in.
0: I think through Stiesel and through some of your work, people are fascinated by the, um, the way that uh, people in your community date, that the dates are like job interviews. What kind of a family do you want to have? How many children you want to have? How do you want to live? You know less, quote-unquote, you know, spontaneous, romantic, you know, two souls meet and, you know, you get to know each other and figure each other out. It's very very bottom line, you know, from the very beginning. And then I was thinking about the reality shows that secular society is currently obsessed with. Married at first sight, love is blind, and essentially, these are shiduchim. They put people together, they say, you know, decide at the beginning if you're committed or not, and, uh, you know, let the rest flow from there. So essentially, it's adopting, you know, some of the the customs that are, are familiar to you as a person in the
2: orthodox world and you tell me why, why do you think it happens why, why would these be the, the shows that everyone would want to see uh, you know obviously
0: for the same reason that I think all of these works you know portraying ultra orthodox life is are popular that there's some sort of feeling of dissatisfaction maybe with people not being committed to the idea of commitment and that if the person doesn't set them on fire from the first moment then you know goodbye you know swipe left time for the time for the next person
2: i think that like i see all those i, I don't watch the reality but i see my friends and they all into it all those realities uh, shows and it's Everyone wants to be to find love, you know? And when it's really when it's when every when, when the, the, he can text you and you can meet him and you can, you can even go to bed with him and then he can just not be there. I just then this is this is sad. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants it. Everyone wants someone to love them and to love back. And the modern world is world is it makes it, it makes it harder.
0: Modern women understand this attraction to spirituality and religious community, but I really think that they have a tough time with the rigid gender roles and male authority in the ultra-Orthodox world. I think you're pretty straightforward about it in your films, but in these communities, women's lives are, to a large extent, dictated by men. Even the strong women have to accept what the rabbi says, accept what their father says, what their husband says. And in Fire Dance on television, when you had more time to work with these issues, you went quite deeply into some of the problems of the women's lives in this community. Did you feel at all uncomfortable shining a light on some of the less flattering parts of life for women in the ultra-Orthodox community?
2: That's very interesting because I don't see that I did that. I think... From what I understand, from what I f- felt for the past 30 years of the ultra-Orthodox world and the religious world, forget the ultra-Orthodox world, the, the, re- the religious rules, I feel that the respect for the women is very high. They are really being taken care of. Let, for example, I'll give you an example. There is a cinema industry in the ultra orthodox world it's done only by women for women they do everything they direct they edit they do the sound they they do, they they shoot it they do everything it's women doing for women by women only women watch it it's a whole very feminine world not feminist more feminine
0: maybe um, a common uh, a common thread is the pain of older women who don't find a mate who don't find a shiduch and how they feel like they're you know looked down on and humiliated and the fringe of society and that you know without marriage
2: without family that a woman is nothing but but tell me a woman in your world that didn't find love at the age of 45 everyone's looking at her too yeah, You know what I'm saying? She can maybe hide behind a career. But she still, when she goes and she meets her friend and everyone has a family, she feels exactly what this girl in the ultra-Orthodox society feels. She feels unwhole, un- un- not fulfilled. I find it's the same. It's just v- different vocabularies, different way of saying it, different languages and different uh, songs. But it's the same.
0: Fire Dance breaks new ground for you in that it features a central male character, a charismatic rabbi who's played by heartthrob Yehuda Levi. This rabbi is conflicted between his natural ability to relate to women to help women and the boundaries and rules of ultra-orthodox society. You wrote the series and created this character well before some of the recent sexual abuse scandals that rocked the ultra-orthodox world. The scandals involved charismatic religious leaders like your hero, who exploited their positions to hurt and abuse the women who admire and revere them, like the heroine of your series. In the wake of those scandals,
2: does that at all bother you? Again, I don't feel that it's in a certain community. I th- it's just in a. It's called differently in every community. Right. Okay. If you go to I don't know to a therapist, that crosses the line, then he crosses the line, and we. So films and read books of, uh, about therapists across the line because it's very hard. You get very intimate with someone that is very, gives everything out. And it's this, this intimacy. I did the whole show about this intimacy. What do you do without fire? What do you, how do you dance with it?
0: So uh, Yehuda Levy being very sexy as an ultra-Orthodox man uh, in fire dance as Iftah Klein was in, uh, in Fill the Void. Do you have some sort of, boot camp technique for teaching secular actors to behave like members of the ultra-Orthodox uh, community because these performances are extremely convincing.
2: They, they, All of them, when they come, when we start working, all of them, they, they want to do the work of understanding the world, maybe go stay with them a little bit, maybe. And I never do that. I say it's a heart. A heart is a heart. If you understand what he feels, you'll behave like an ultra-Orthodox. It's not about the religion. It's about the feelings. It's about the heart. So all we do, and I do a lot of uh, rehearsals uh, in comparison to other people. I do a lot of rehearsals. I prefer less days of shooting and more days of rehearsal in terms of uh, budget. Um, And what we do is we understand truly what they feel. I do it by writing it. I should understand it. Then... By directing it, and once they do, then it just—it's it, like th- all the muscles do that. For example, Yuval Levy was not was not used to working that way. At the beginning, it was a little bit hard for him, and then he was really like addicted to not doing anything and just feeling. And at the end, he did. Every once in a while, he sends like um, a text that says, "I want you to direct me all my life, <laughs> because it's it's it's, it's um." I think it's um, addicting to just be able to be and feel. And this is how I direct. So so I think it's not about there being um, like an ultra-other. she's just, just being very genuine in terms of a person. So.
0: When you look at all the material that has come out since uh, Fill the Void in the past decade, um, you know, most prominently Stiezel, uh, but other things as well that are mainly written, directed, or both either by secular people or by formerly Orthodox people who are now secular creators. Do you see a distinction between uh, what you make, what you're, what you're trying to say in your work, and uh, and these uh and these films and uh, and television shows do you you know see a clear contrast in the in the point of view
2: when i do my work i want people to love god okay this is what i want more than anything that my love to god should be spread okay this is what i do and then there's a story and then there's all kinds of stuff i'm not sure that this is what you know guides them they're more into maybe a story more into characters my characters they all serve that thing that is the beauty of the world this is what i like this is why my all all my work is always very aesthetic everything is beautiful beautiful the music is amazing the music is amazing thank you yes daniel samir and david Levy. amazing I need that because I I I I believe in the magic of cinema, magic of television, and it's in beauty. I love beauty. It doesn't mean that you don't uh, deal with parts in you that are not beautiful. The beauty is the dealing.
0: So finally, I would imagine that at your level of success, Hollywood has come calling. Are you at all interested in moving outside the Israeli Orthodox Jewish world and making films or television that take place outside Israel, outside the Jewish community, in a completely different time and place?
2: I'm actually, I I told you, fire dance started in America, and I drew it and went to do it in Israel because I felt that I'm not ready yet. But I feel that I'm ready now, and the thing that I'm working on right now is extremely religious, but it has no ultra-Orthodox characters, and it is totally a kind of fairy tale. Uh, people that, it, they, it doesn't even look Jewish. And yet, it's it's my heart, and it's my love for God. So I think, I think this is what we're working on right now. Hopefully it'll work.
0: Rama Burstein Shai, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It was lovely. Thank you for the questions. And that wraps things up for this episode of Haaretz Weekly. Many thanks to my guests, Amir Tibon and Rama Burshtin Shai, and to producer Shani Aviram. For the latest on Israel's fifth election campaign, don't forget to listen to Election Overdose with Anshel Pfeffer and Dalia Shenlin, which drops on Friday. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer. Until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.